I'm laughing because I was giving subtle directions for this to be brought over here, and it had a water jug on it over there. So the water jug went away, but the water bottle came my way. So I was, <laughs> I was blessed. And uh, kind of plays in with where we'll go tonight, sort of. But thanks, Everest, for doing that. Um, Christy, with regard to announcements following, oops, <laughs> I'm not doing really well. She has announcements for us uh, later. Do you have announcements for us, Christy? We're having a big hullabaloo after church. And if you want to know what one of those look like, stay. It could be awesome. But we're putting things together for Saturday. That's why we have a little bit of a different look right now. So um, keep that in prayer, both uh, the technicalities. And I'm so glad that I that my guys didn't march on orders because they were preparing videos or the lyrics for tonight and had they acted upon that the curtains would have altogether looked differently when I came in and the fingers would have been pointing at me so thanks for resisting that we're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 11 tonight title as we moved through just the intro um, when we started was not wrong, just wronged, wronged. And it's an important theme right now because we see a man whom Jesus admired greatly, a cousin about six months older than he, and one who had performed his mission with excellence and yet finds himself in the predicament of being detained or imprisoned because of his message, his convictions, he riled authority and authority that had no spirituality took care of John by putting him away in prison. The disciples have been spoken to. They've been given a command after hearing teachings from the Lord. And what I would say may pertain indeed to what John experienced as a very popular teacher. He had disciples too, and he sent them away to Jesus. We have a remnant, at least two by count right now, that came as ambassadors of John, who in prison is questioning his relevancy, is questioning his accuracy. But he's not wrong. He's just been wronged. And it's important to take note of that because our faith isn't dependent upon things going right. We can be very right, but it doesn't mean that things are going to be right towards us but that doesn't mean you're wrong 
it very likely like John and like Jesus and many others who have followed the Lord and obviously Jesus following the heart of his father, we could say was wronged. God has been wronged. He's not wrong. He has been wronged. As a result of his righteousness and his justice, those things will be made right. And thank the Lord, really, all of us ought to, is that because of the rebelliousness of men, had he the temperament that we have, his decision may have been altogether different. And the grace that we live in now may not have been able to be appreciated. And so in this context right now, John has just really faithfully dispatched what the scriptures had said, foretold he would do, and that was to be a forerunner of Jesus. He would go before the Lord, and he would make right by his convicting messages the roads that were crooked. He would lay the axe to the tree. He would begin in his convicting messages to turn those who had an ear to hear to repentance and to publicly display that by being baptized in the Jordan River. And that's where we're going to pick it up right now. We're going to see what principles that apply to us in these days. And we're also going to be mindful that for those of us who have been wronged, doesn't mean that you were wrong. You can be very right and live a very sorrowful life in terms of things not turning out the way that you had planned. But I do believe that, though that may be true, I also find that it's seasons that God gives us, not necessarily lifetimes, because there's new mercies each day. We must be able to find them and to be able to thank the Lord for them. And so here we go, chapter 11. It came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now, it's interesting because well over half of them paired up have come from Capernaum, where Jesus has made his headquarters of faith. And so we know that in the context of at least 10 miracles that have happened, somewhere between five and six, maybe seven, but I think five for certain, were all in Capernaum, the town that wasn't his birth city, the town that wasn't his childhood rearing city up to the time that he was an adult. It was Capernaum. It was the place in which he, after 
having been baptized by John, his cousin, after he had gone out into the wilderness, compelled by the Spirit, and walking along the seashore of Galilee. They still called it a sea. We know it to be a big, huge lake. Called the men that were in that area, that region. Here, as it says that he's not only commanding them, but he is now taking the initiative, and this is what I find to be interesting, to both teach and preach in their cities. Capernaum again? You live in Brookings as I do. Do you have places that affectionately are your cities spiritually? Some place where the Lord had inspired the work that you're involved in now? A place in which much of the maturity or nurturing that you enjoy presently came from a place that actually indelibly marked you and you have people that not only you can pray for, but that you know. Now, I can't keep up with all of the people that I've known in all of these years, but I can pray for those cities in which the Lord had authentically directed me to and had by command instructed me to leave. These are the cities right now that seem to have an association with each one of these disciples. We might call it a multiplication, a visitation. I visited there. Do I pray for France? I was in France. Is that my city, Lord? It needs prayer. With all the history that we know of concerning France, we can cite the time in which they rejected God and inherited a bloodbath by becoming a godless culture, highly secularized. And we can see evidence of that today in their government. I was there. I was on the Eiffel Tower, but I did not ascend to the pinnacle of the Eiffel Tower like my wife and my kids did. I was meant to be a foundational visitor to the Eiffel Tower. I was to hold it together, you know, while they rang the bell or whatever that was they did. I was in Israel, in Jerusalem. Lord, is that my city? The city that you preached and taught at and about, is that my city? California, Costa Mesa, Santa Ana, Virginia, Fairfax County, Washington, D.C. Lord, is that my city? See, there's things right now that the Lord would say are our cities, where we're at, headquarters. Are we able to, by prayer and communique, revisit those times where we were marked and we had a mark on people's lives. This isn't to burden us on whether we're great communicators or not. That's not the point. Because I might have to say this, that I think also stands out. 
Jesus is going to visit those cities. This isn't all of a sudden for you guys to vacate, get airline tickets, bus tickets, get in your cars, pack up and go itinerantly to those cities. This is saying that those cities that have a history with you and you with it, Jesus will visit. Happy to do it. Happy to have results there. However, we do know that even in the power as God and full of the Holy Spirit, inarguable in what he would say, captivating in who would hear him, they wouldn't necessarily listen either, not even necessarily too impressed with his message of God's grace, the good news that man could be forgiven. So just a thought there. Where is it that you can say, Lord, on behalf of me, my cities, would you visit there with that person, that family, that business? Lord, would you revisit that city on account of its rejection of me, the wrong that was done to me in that place? I wasn't wrong. I was wronged. And so I think that that's an important note. Very often what we do is we say, shake the dust off of my sandal and spit in the air. That was meant to convey a different message of rejection. And Jesus did tell his disciples, just shake the dust off your sandals. Let them know you came in my name and they rejected you as of God. So Jesus will preach and teach in their cities. And Capernaum, how could you have missed? How could you have missed? He'll get on to that later. Verse 2 says, And when John had heard in person about the works of Christ, or excuse me, <laughs> you know I'm laughing because it's not in person, it's in prison. But that reminds me, Fred Meyer called me automatically and said, hey, your glasses are in. There we go. I need glasses. <laughs> but I still like that. It tickled me. I couldn't, huh, I hadn't heard that before. <laughs> and when John had, <laughs> had heard in prison, and he had had personal experience with Jesus, about the works of Christ he sent two of his disciples. So these are the guys I preceded in the long narration of telling you about. They're guys that are still linked, visiting John in prison. They're encouraging him, and they're probably listening to what he right now is wondering about his life. Was I wrong? Would you take this message to Jesus and ask him these things? It says, regarding that in verse 2, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go. 
and tell John the things which you hear and see. So they've come with the question from John, and Jesus tells them what you hear and what you see, not what you heard and thought you saw, what you hear and what you see, present tense. Hang around a little bit longer so that you understand with conviction and sincerity and without any doubt who I am and to make him assured that he need not question what he has accomplished. You see and you hear, follow. You know, when John said to a core of his disciples, I must decrease that he might increase, he essentially was saying, my position right now with regard to my popularity is let go of, that I may apprehend truly now the one who I came to represent. He basically said it's, it's completed. My work has been satisfied. And, but in the dismissal, he still had a loyal fan base. He had Instagram fame. And his accounts eventually had to summarily just be canceled by ultimately what happens with time and distance and a lack of popularity. This was what he was willing to do. And really for all of us in that regard, it's no indictment to those that needed to take off. That isn't the point. But I do enjoy the fact that we can see that these disciples, whether they are itinerant right now, they show a love for John in a difficult time, and they are encouraging him. Have you been encouraged in a difficult time by those who have just said, I'm not leaving. I'm continuing to invest myself in you. It doesn't mean that they hadn't obeyed and primarily been at the disposal of Jesus, but it does mean that they continued on in a faithful work of being listeners and attenders of John. He was not in a prison that we have today. He was in a dark place, a place that he would have been quite out of place in. John was a very rugged man, as you'll understand. He would have been equated with a prophet whose name will be coming up soon. But I like what that says concerning them as messengers of John. And then Jesus reiterating truth that deeply would have been set in John's heart. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. 
So this actually certifies that John had followed a course of understanding that one whom he would be the forerunner of would accomplish these things. And in fact, Jesus had accomplished all of these things with yet even more miracles to be acknowledged. And it is very likely that these individuals indeed stuck around to see and to be able to hear both truth as far as doctrine goes and the evidence of miracles that Jesus would bring before them that they might not have doubts. They would have the assurance. We see it with our eyes. We hear it with our ears. This isn't just what the people have been voicing. We were a part of it. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. The offense that Jesus would bring, he had already previously discussed, saying, who I am and what I expect can be very offensive to those whom you love the most. And who in that time of their offense will love you the least. The sword will pierce your home, your vocation. People will be divided regarding your conviction in following me and what I ask of you in subordinating yourself to me. We are in a society where insubordination is greater than subordination. Now, there's always been rebellion. This, however, is on a huge level of rebellion because it's the institution of faith, of religion. The Jewish religion is insubordinate to God. They are rebelling from actually the connection that Jesus was making between heaven and earth as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God. And so the gospel will be preached and offense will be a consequence. But he says, blessed are those who are not offended on account of me. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? So it's an interesting phrase, and it does have several implications. But it may mean, did you go out to see a spectacle to entertain yourself of one who orates without vacillating? Did you go out to take note of him regarding what is being spoken about him? Was this just an entertainment venue for you? And you traveled a long way to see him. You know, when you talk about the distance from Jerusalem to the place that is somewhat considered the area of the baptism of John, where the Jordan flows, it's a long distance. 
And people actually will travel long distances to be entertained. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying that if it is contrary to what they need to travel for, which is to understand God better, then it would be considered by Solomon's perspective as vanity, vanity. We showcase a lot of entertainment today that people will pay large sums of money. And at the same time, venues that are spiritual and intended to be beneficial to the soul and necessary for establishing us in faith and truth, people won't travel five miles to get at. Did you go there just to see John, whether he was changing his opinion, whether he was just dipping his pen, the reed, into an inkwell on fresh papyrus, canceling out the things that he once said in order to become more appeasing, more appealing? We can appease and we can do it on the premise of appealing, and we can do that when we feel that the weight of judgment is upon us and we don't want it. So we change the story a bit. In theology, that's called heresy. When we change doctrine to appease or to appeal. Appease means settling down the anger that's being directed at us. Appealing means doing whatever it takes to show you're more of them than you are of God. And that kind of thing, a heretic or heresy, leads to ultimately apostasy, a complete turning away from God. And we've talked about that in the news, and it's very, it's very heartbreaking that men who in spiritual positions compromised in doctrine to where they can't even believe what they once did believe, and then they make an announcement, both men and women, highly functional, very much contributing to the cause of the gospel, and they move to apostasy and announce it with callous refutation. Yeah, I wasn't thinking right. I don't know what I think anymore, and I don't care. And I'm really not a Christian. I don't think I ever was a Christian. So whatever I sang about, whatever I spoke about, whatever I wrote about, it's irrelevant. I was wrong. No, you weren't wrong. You were wronged by an enemy who lied to you and whom you believed because you did not take the time to read the Word of God, to take a grip once again on the promises of God. We all go through that. We're all vulnerable to being lied to, which in essence is being wronged. But it doesn't make you wrong. And so it's an important part of a responsibility to be encouraged by God See, that's an important thing, too, is that our relationship with God should be so highly prized that even if 
where we're left is a dungeon, a cell, a lockout. We have the ability to know that though it isn't the place we choose to be, it's the place that God has allowed us to be for a season. And if nobody visits me, then I have with certainty the confidence that the Holy Spirit within me and Jesus, who is not constrained by bars or anything, is by my side. That's how an individual in discipleship ought to be, living a life that if everyone turns, will I turn away from God? Is my relationship with God based on the popularity of others concerning God? So heresy, that's no longer valuing doctrinal truth, but watering it down, no longer teaching the principles of moral and ethical behavior and eternal goals leads to apostasy, denying God, or that you ever were correct about him. Sad. Because people that were highly influential will be held accountable for that in terms of the destruction that it may have on another person's life. I know that God can work all of those things out. And no matter who that person or that band, that pastor, teacher may have been, everybody still is responsible to God and to God alone on the decisions they make. So even the influence of others that that may ultimately affect the rewards or show us that they never knew the Lord anyways, every person is accountable by science and biology, by the environment alone. Romans 1.19 would declare you are without excuse. Jesus removes those excuses. They departed, Jesus began again to say to those multitudes concerning John, so did you go out to a circus? That isn't who was there, was it? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Did you really believe that he would be dressed like those who have a different thing to say. He's exactly as the prophet Isaiah not only was, but in whom he prophesied would come, a rugged man. And he had a rugged way of speaking. His message was firm. And his personality was not gentle. It doesn't mean that he was cruel. It just means that he had a roaring passion for declaring the person of Jesus Christ. And I've sat under fiery people before. Their message is bold. I've sat under gentle teachers and preachers. Their message is easily entreated. I'm at the same time judged in a kind of way in how I teach. 
how we say the gift of putting you at rest is what I'm used by. <laughs> because I fell asleep one time in front of my senior pastor while on staff, I know what it's like to be exhausted <laughs> and to listen to somebody whose voice is soothing, gentle. But Jesus is moving through right now what may have been the compelling reason that they went out there. Let's just go see this guy. See if he's changed his message. See if he's changed his garments. Heesh. Last time, whoo. Wanted to put him in the river. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I say to you, and more than a prophet, Strike on the first, strike on the second, yes, on the third, he indeed is a prophet and was the prophet spoken of in Isaiah. For this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus is obviously, in this quote, speaking of John, and it's the reference of himself. But I also like it when I take away the capital. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way before you? When we come into an assembly and we're willing to sit before a teaching, whether the guy's good at it, whether he is charismatic in it, I don't know, whatever he may be. Do we receive that message as from the Lord and intended for me? And very often, at the conclusion of teaching Sundays or Thursdays, someone will say to me, did you, how did you pick that title? How did you pick that theme? And I'm saying, well, the title, I do believe I have, I have some liberty in. But I try to make it capture what I'm talking about. And I'm somewhat poetically clever. The message, though, as you know, is nothing other than moving through the scriptures. And as my pastor said, where we are is where we are. And so one of the things I know that was important for me is that when I sat down before a teacher, I would say, Lord, that I might have ears to hear and a heart that's fashioned after your will, and that I might be obedient in that which you are saying and when my feathers get ruffled, then I say, Lord, may I preen them back in to how they ought to be, that I might fly truly in the spirit, in the manner that you desire me to be light in this life, able to take flight, but not in fear, able to move with wings on my feet.
Assuredly, verse 11, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is a compliment, by the way, because very often we could think of that person that's publicly so noted and seemingly so gifted and overflowing and attributes that we wish we had or that we think other people are impressed with. And he says, the least, which is a good thing to be able to boast in. I feel like I'm the least, Jesus would say to you and to me, you're greater than he is. You're greater. For you to be able to say, not be moaningly, but humbly, I'm the least, you're the greater. It's a compliment. Jesus would say he did not come to be served, but to serve. He was saying, as great as I am, my statement about being really great is found in my serving. So guess what? When we see serving happening and you're seeing it, and what you see behind me, and what you see filled in this place, serving, there are people that are simply demonstrating the greatness by being the least. I could compliment all of them, but they know who they are. And it doesn't mean necessarily anything with regard to what others may or may not do. Because everybody has an opportunity in some situation to be the least. And God says, in that situation, you're the greatest. You're the greatest. Serving by being the least is greater than by being the biggest. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. So this is the Lord reminding that there is warfare. There is a war against the work of the kingdom of God. It is both internal and external. It happens within the church, and it happens against the church by a world system and by an enemy. In the unseen areas of a spiritual reality, we need to be reminded of that. Paul would say in Ephesians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and spiritual forces in high places, dark areas, wickedness. So it is important that we remind ourselves that we're in a battle and it's as violent as what we are hearing in the news today in which the innocent are not spared, nor are those who indeed are warriors. They're not spared. The assault from Russia upon a land that was forging itself as fresh against the USSR and so Ukraine is suffering. They already have body counts. And you look at it and you're going, I mean, sometimes we can separate it because we see at times the Middle East and altogether a different kind of treachery. We can be at times really biased in that. And partly it's because indeed some of the factions within the Middle East are so cruel in their treatment of people. I mean, we've we realized that within the past five years. 13 or 14 that actually we've been over there and now out of there, 
but just atrocities is what you would call them. But when you have neighboring communities that are actually more akin to being brothers and sisters with one another, and they're at war, and one as a superpower using weapons that are highly destructive. So we don't even know where this is per se going, except the Lord was very clear that there would be wars and rumors of wars. There would be violent attacks. You know, they have Christians in Ukraine. They have Christians in Russia. You do know that, right? There's churches there. They are churches that are thriving in a secular society and one in which their liberties are constrained. They live there. And they're sorrowing and they're praying there. And we need to be praying about that. Because it does not mean that we can indefinitely suspend our convictions concerning God and believe that everything's going to be great by a secular turn. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he was a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. And so, as Jesus concludes simply in this point, he's saying this generation is not in the maturity of where they ought to be historically. They know They've been in possession of the oracles of God, and they know. And like children, and we've seen them, who want it their way, not the parents' way. And they want to make the rules up, as opposed to be ruled and governed by God, who is as a parent to them. And that's why parenting is very important. How you parent is significant. If you didn't have parents in that regard, you have a parent. You have a heavenly father. And he's glad to both take you on his knee. He's glad to be able to lovingly correct you. He is happy to be a blesser of you. There's no excuses. We get a season to be parents and we'll experience the same challenges in parenting our kids as our Heavenly Father has in parenting us and His nation. We get an opportunity. We get an opportunity to parent the church, meaning to be good examples of what it's like to care for the weak, the infirmed, the strong, 
talents and gifts. How do we encourage that? And so the contrast that he's saying here is that John in similitude to Elijah has come in the spirit of Elijah. And as Elijah was challenged, John has now been challenged by government. And he has now been imprisoned by a wicked man. And Jesus is not going to rescue him. John was not wrong. John was wronged. Jesus is not wrong, but he is being wronged. The church is not wrong, but it's being wronged. Marriage is not wrong. It's very right, but it's being challenged by a culture that is hedonistic, carnal, insubordinate, rebellious. And so what we do is we stand our ground, we stand on the promises of God, and we allow ourselves to not vacillate in the message of Jesus Christ, Him crucified, and a life that both being forgiven and being endowed by the Holy Spirit makes it an extraordinary life even though it is a hard life. As I pray, Stephen's going to close us out in a song, and then we'll take a few moments to get closing notes from Christy. You already know what you're... Where do you said it? Okay. Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessings right now. Thank you for your word. Thank you for um, what it means to us. And it is meaningful, Lord. You've addressed just in this, through the pen of Matthew, your intentions for the attention of people to respond to your message, to be employed in your giftings, to wage a war that is divine, not carnal, to be those who, even being wronged, will choose to do right and to stand on that principle and to not turn from doctrine, nor to deny you before men. Thank you for your many blessings, Lord, to us. Thank you for allowing us to be privileged in this season and time to see so many things that are prophetically pointing to the nearness of your coming for your church. Bless us as we close out in the wonderful provision of prophetic songs that comfort us and encourage us and correct us. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.